Um, but let me get started quick and just welcome you all today. I'm really thrilled with the, with the crowd. This is exciting. Um, I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs with the Cato Institute. And again, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, this is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled, A Conservative Approach to Smarter Federal Marijuana Policy. Um, and first, if you're watching via our live stream and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet comments and questions to us at hashtag Cato Events. And further, this spring, the Cato Institute released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, copies were available to you on the door as you came in, or at the table when you came in, and many of the issues we'll touch on today can be found in the Law and Liberty section. Um, and if you'd like more copies, please contact me after the program. And meanwhile, there are fully searchable PDFs at Cato.org if you want to look into it more. Um, so to lead today's discussion is Jonathan Blanks, who was a research associate in Cato's project on criminal justice. And he's also the managing editor of policemisconduct.net. Uh, his research is focused on law enforcement practices, overcriminalization, and civil liberties. Blanks has appeared on various television, radio, and internet media, and his work has appeared in internet and national publications as well. So thank you all for coming, and let's welcome Jonathan Blanks. Thanks, Peter. Um, I'm old enough to remember when I was 1996, I was in my college dorm, and I opened up my mailbox and got my national review. It was February, and it was a big red cover that said, the war on drugs is lost. The, the uh, flagship periodical of the intellectual conservative movement had conceded the end of the drug war. Unfortunately, that hasn't translated to direct policy on the federal level, but uh, it has, in the, in the 20 years past, we have come a considerable way the uh, Republican nominee for president, and obviously the president, uh, President Trump, was 100% behind medical marijuana on the campaign trail. Uh, 29 states have some form of legalized marijuana and 100 that, that represent 115 electoral votes that went for the Republican candidate. More than 200 million American residents, that's 62% of the population, live where marijuana is, medical marijuana is legal. Nationwide, 71% of Americans, including 63% of Republicans, oppose federal interference with state legal mar marijuana laws. Since 2014, the Rohrabacher Farr Amendment has maintained an imperfect status quo. That means, for those who are unaware, the, uh, the Rohrabacher Farr says that the Department of Justice cannot spend money to prosecute medical marijuana cases in states where it's legal. Um, but the federal reach goes a little further than that. Uh, dispensaries, businesses and dispensaries are still left to deal with the vagaries of federal law, particularly banking and financial regulation, because right now the federal government strongly discourages any marijuana business, uh, banks from doing business with marijuana businesses. And so uh, marijuana dispensaries tend to be very cash heavy. Uh, they are cash only businesses, and that leads to a number of problems, including security, taxes, and, and the like. And today, we're not up here to make the case that marijuana is great. I don't think anyone on this dais is a marijuana enthusiast. <laughs> but it is a legitimate policy conflict that affects millions of Americans. Right now, a Republican-controlled Congress can stay put, move forward, or move backward on federal mar marijuana policy. We believe that Republicans can act in accordance with their principles toward a smarter federal marijuana policy. Indeed, we suggest a tolerant federal policy is consistent with conservative principles on political, legal, and ethical levels. And here to present uh, the case for this are three distinguished speakers. 
Uh, Tom Garrett represents Virginia's 5th Congressional District. Before coming to Congress, he served six years in the U.S. Army and was later elected to, to be Commonwealth's Attorney and State Senator in Virginia. Over his years of public service, Garrett has received awards from the Virginia Chamber of Commerce, the Virginia Association of Commonwealth Attorneys, the American Conservative Union, and Freedom Works. During his tenure in Congress, Garrett works to advance constitutional principles, rein in reckless spending, improve education initiatives for students, and put the safety and security of the nation above all else. He was named to have the House Committees on Homeland Security, Foreign Affairs, and Education, and Workforce for the 115th Congress. Garrett received his bachelor's in law degrees from the University of Richmond. Following him, uh, Professor Ilias Soman is a law professor at George Mason University. His research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and the study of po popular political participation and its implications for constitutional democracy. That's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> he is the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, what, uh, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, and The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New York, and New The London. Limits, huh? New London. No, sorry, of New London, and The Limits of an Eminent Domain. Uh, from 2006 to 2013, he served as co-editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review, one of the country's top-rated law and economics journals. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including the, the Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, Georgetown Law Review, and many others, including popular, uh, popular media like the New York Times, Room for Debate. He writes regularly for the Volk Conspiracy at the Washington Post. He clerked for Judge Jerry Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and he earned his B.A. summa cum laude from Amherst College, his M.A. in political science from Harvard, and his J.D. from Yale. And last and certainly not least is my colleague Trevor Burris. He's a research fellow at Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. His research interests include constitutional law, civil and criminal law, law and political philosophy and legal history. His academic work has appeared in journals such as the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, the New York University Journal of Law and Liberty, New York University Annual Survey of American Law, Syracuse Law University and Law Review, and many others. He's also appeared in many uh, popular media like the Washington Post and the New York Times. He lectures regularly on behalf of the Federalist Society, the Institute for Humane Studies, and the Foundation for Economics Education. Uh, he also, he's the co-host of Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast that covers uh, topics in libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. Uh, he's the editor of uh, conspiracy Against Obamacare that holds a, and holds a BA in philosophy from the University of Colorado at Boulder and the University of Denver College Storm of Law. And please welcome Congressman Garrett. I try to, I try to populate the room with my staffers so that somebody will start the applause. Um, you guys did okay. Um, I, you shouldn't have told me that, uh, that uh, Professor Soman writes for Volt because now I have a bone to pick. Um, um, we'll start out by, by going backwards and talking about something other than marijuana, and that is about four years ago, I carried a bill in the Commonwealth of Virginia that ended the prohibition on crimes against nature, which was anything other than missionary position sex between people married. And, and Volk said I had some sort of ulterior motive because I wouldn't include teenagers and adults as a group that were allowed to do that. That's the prosecutor in me. Um, so shame on you guys. Um, that was one of my co-bloggers, not me. But, but <laughs> suffice it to say from 1619 until, until July 1st, 2014, um, in Virginia we had very draconian laws regulating what you could do in the privacy of your own home, which was ridiculous and it does segue well into the marijuana policy debate. I'll start out by uh, reiterating what was just said and that is that I'm not pro-marijuana. Uh, I'm not anti-marijuana, I'm pro-constitution, I'm pro-liberty, I'm pro-government that enforces its laws. We'll start with three anecdotes. Um, the first 
comes from my time as a prosecutor. This is me putting myself on a stopwatch so I know when I've talked too long. I either speak until three people fall asleep or I hit a time limit. <laughs> um, and, and that is two parallel stories, uh, those of two young men who were arrested in the county that I prosecuted in for almost analogous offenses. Both had roughly the same amount of marijuana, roughly the same amount of cash uh, and firearms, um, and were arrested for possession with intent to distribute. One was African-American and adopted, and the other was Caucasian and the child of a very prominent member of the community. Um, and we prosecuted both identically, despite the fact that for the Caucasian young man, we received letters from literally every member of the Board of Supervisors, the elected sheriff, who was an African-American, and other prominent community members saying what a good young man this was and how we should take it easy on him. I went in the back room with my deputy prosecutor and said, because the African-American young man had come first, and said, if we treat this person any different than the other person, then we have no business holding this job in this country. That is, the justice that isn't blind isn't justice. By its very definition, if laws are not equally applied, then they are not just. And where there are laws that are unjust, the value of all other laws is reduced. That is, as I look at what is promulgated as law, and I see that some laws are uniformly applied and some are disparately applied, in my mind, as a rational thinking human being, I think, what's law? What do I need to obey? What do I not need to obey? And so the first breakdown as it relates to federal marijuana policy is that we have, in the case of marijuana policy, a series of laws that are either unequally applied or, or discretionarily applied, but that they manifest themselves in their misapplication or their, or their um, different application in inherent injustice. So for example, in fact, these two young men were sentenced to, I think, within a month or two of the exact same sentence as one another, and we don't do sentencing, but we argued the case the exact same way. I ignored the political pressure, which I can tell you that carrying um, HR 1227 or H HB 1227, which we have here in Congress, is not popular in the largely rural um, uh, Fifth District of Virginia. But what I like to say is um, that might not be popular, but what is popular in my district is doing the right thing. And so, if you take an analogous set of circumstances, and a young man, say for example, in Virginia. Um, he may very well end up in federal prison. I stress the word federal because these are federal laws. And then take the same set of circumstances and apply them to a young person and say, for example, Colorado, thank you. And he may be an entrepreneur, right? And so inherently you have a circumstance that's unjust. And so that will diminish the opinion of the rule of law to individuals, not only by deed, but by act. And it will lead to outcomes that are unfair. Now, we'll never have fairness in this world, right? Gandhi said man cannot be made good by law. Uh, but the founders also didn't give us a perfect union. They said we should aspire to be a more perfect union, right? So we should always try to have laws in the books that we're willing to enforce uniformly. Or, in the words of Attorney General Jeff Sessions, right, if you don't like the law, change it. We'll move to the next anecdote. Lisa Smith, a mother, a professional woman, comes to my office as a member of the Virginia Senate. I, for two years, was the lead Republican patron, and I stress Republican because it was a Democrat's bill, um, Dave Marsden, we'll give him some credit, uh, on, on med medical marijuana reform. And it's not, so, candidly, to be completely fair, the first time I heard the expression medical marijuana, I promise you I giggled and thought, damn, that's a creative way to move towards. Um, but, but the more I learned, the more I realized that we have these draconian laws as a result, ultimately, of a misunderstanding and an, uh, a demonization of something that, that for whatever reason, and I think there were probably some ethnic and racial undertones, um, um, is just not accurate. So for example, we know scientifically 
that if you have uh, digestive intolerance due to uh, chemotherapy, if you have terminal pain management issues, some PTSD type things, glaucoma was the original, or in the case of Lisa Smith and the daughter for whom she was a champion, is a champion, a child with intractable epileptic seizures. Now we know based on science and results that THC extracts, that cannabinoid extracts can be effective in all the areas that I've, that I've named, all of them. And as we work to create a circumstance in Virginia where patients or parents and their medical professionals can make the decisions that they deem to be in their own best interest of that of, or the, of their minor children, the pharmacists were one of the greatest lobbyists against us. Now you could say that's because Big Pharma has an interest and we could dis discuss that. But I, I think the argument they made was a valid one and that is they can't carry these products because there's a federal regulatory scheme that prohibits it. If there's another ulterior motive, so be it, but that's a legitimate argument. So as we move towards doing what's right to empower individuals to make decisions with their medical professionals for their own best interest or that of the people in their care, there are barriers to entry along the way, and they'll remain to be there so long as the federal government chooses not to act to reform its own policy. So what our bill does is and people go, it's legalization. I say, well, to the extent that it's federal, I suppose it would be legalization. But what it is, is a recognition of enumerated powers and federalism and the, and the fact that Alabama might choose to do something different than New York, but I can't find anywhere in the Constitution the underpinnings of what should allow us as a federal government to regulate this product that would grow naturally throughout large swaths of our country were we not to make an effort to eradicate it, right? So that's number two. And then, and then tertiarily, uh, the 5th District of Virginia grows about seven-eighths of all the tobacco grown in Virginia. Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Kentucky are, unique, Kentucky are uniquely situated geographically as it relates to climatological and, and horticultural realities to be monsters in the industry of agri agricultural hemp, right? And, and, and we don't do hemp in America. Why? Because it's got a first cousin, marijuana, that has been vilified and demonized over literally five generations. So what we have on the front end is an idea that we should have equal justice, that justice should be blind or else it will not be justice. The second is that people and their medical professionals make better decisions for people and their, and their dependents than does an overarching federal government who doesn't know their name nor care. And the third is that there's economic opportunity lost in a region of the state that suffered economically by virtue of the fact that we have a crop that would be profitable, we literally hemp is a multi-hundred million dollar import right now, and our exports virtually nil. And so, I mean, there's more corn grown in the county I grow up in every year than there is hemp and acreage grown in the entire United States. So, three good reasons for the federal government to get the heck out of the way. Now, if you want a fourth, it's that foundationally, there's no purview for the government, the federal government, to insert itself into this arena. But I mean, I guess we live in the world we live in, not the world we wish we lived in. So there we are. I tell everybody, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'm speaking to normal later today, and I'll blow their minds when I tell them I'm not pro-marijuana. I'm pro-justice. I'm pro-medical choice. I'm pro-freedom. I'm pro-appropriate level of government having domain over particular issues. And so by virtue of those sort of philosophical underpinnings, I arrived naturally at this conclusion. Now, where's the Republican Party? AWOL, right? I mean, if you look at who's on this issue, who's right on this issue, and you do it in the virtue of a political continuum that's a circle, what you've got is the libertarian-leaning right and, and, and sort of progressive sort of forward leaners who've merged in the middle somewhere, and you've got the middle of both parties who I would argue, without naming names, because I can do that, 
uh, are afraid to do anything that might be not politically expedient and are willing to make politically expedient decisions at the expense of ultimately justice, individual liberty, and economic opportunity. Shame. So, you know, I'll, I've had a lot of people tell me this isn't a political winner for me. I don't right, rightly care what's a political winner. I genuinely believe that if you do what's right, you tell people why you think it's right, that politically that's a winner. And so here we are at the forefront, and it's an honor to be here. Um, I, I got eight minutes and 27 seconds on the stopwatch. I just want to go real quickly over a, a few more things, and then I'll wrap up, and we can move on, and, and then we can maybe take questions. But the whole sort of philosophical underpinning of where I ended up politically is that Jeffersonian construct of liberty that's sort of pulled from Locke and Hobbes and Newton to a tertiary degree, that your liberty should stop where mine starts, that you should be free to do that which you choose to do so long as there's not an impact on others that's negative. And that's easy, and that's who we're, you know, that's who we're supposed to be as a nation. Um, and that, you know, government certainly has grown far, far beyond the specifically enumerated powers, but anything we can do to inch back towards that federalist construct where that Jeffersonian premise that government closest to the people, that is local government, governs best, governs most easily held to account, uh, and governs most frugally is, is a step in the right direction. Having said that, it's going to be a long slog. Having said that, in life you have but two choices. You can fight or you can quit, and everybody here today is a fighter, or else they wouldn't be here, and I'm not in the mood to quit. So thank you all for having me, and certainly once these other fine individuals have had an opportunity to speak, we'll, I'll be happy to hit some questions. I'd like to start by thanking Cato for organizing this event and all of you for coming and uh, Representative Garrett for his leadership on this important issue. Uh, about a week ago, I was being interviewed by a radio talk show host about something else and he said, you know, I can't be a libertarian because I've never tried pot. And I said, well, by that standard, I'm not a libertarian either because I'm one of the few people who went to college in the 1990s who did not take the opportunity to try it. Uh, so. Sadly, I cannot speak to you about this issue based on personal experience, uh, but what I can do is talk to you about two aspects of it. One is the implications for constitutional federalism, and the other is the policy and moral advantages of decentralizing this issue to the state level. So if you look at this from the standpoint of enforcing constitutional limits on federal government power, it's important to recognize that if we don't draw a line on this, if we continue federal marijuana prohibition, uh, then that essentially means signing off on the idea that the federal government can regulate virtually any activity of any kind that it might want to choose to target. And that's not the text and original meaning of the Constitution. It's also not good on policy grounds either. So what gives, at least according to current Supreme Court precedent, what gives Congress the power to ban marijuana throughout the country is the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which says that Congress has the power to regulate commerce among the several states. 
in, in the original understanding of the Constitution, which prevailed for roughly the first 140 years of American history, the commerce power was just understood to give the federal government the authority to restrict the actual shipment of goods and perhaps services across state lines. So for example, when in the early 20th century, many people wanted the federal government to prohibit alcohol, uh, they had to pass a constitutional amendment to do it, the 18th Amendment. Most people recognized that you couldn't just use the Commerce Clause to do this to ban the sale and possession of a good within a particular state. However, beginning with the New Deal revolution in Supreme Court precedent in the 1930s and 40s, the court decided that almost any economic activity could be regulated uh, using the Commerce Clause. In the most extreme case of that period, Wickard versus Filburn, they ruled that the clause gave Congress the power to forbid the growing of wheat, even if the wheat never left your property, never crossed state lines at all, uh, though it was, in this case, at least part of a commercial enterprise. Then, in what is still the most extreme Commerce Clause case in the entire 200-year-plus history of the Supreme Court, in Gonzalez versus Raich in 2005, the Supreme Court ruled that the Commerce Clause even allowed Congress to forbid the possession of marijuana that had never crossed state lines and also had never been sold in any market anywhere, even within a state. Why? They said that uh, the Commerce Clause gives Congress the power to regulate any economic activity. Uh, and then they defined economic activity as anything involving the production, consumption, or distribution of a commodity. Notice that under this theory, the Commerce Clause even gets to uh, enable Congress to regulate what you have for dinner. After all, eating dinner is the consumption of a commodity, probably of more than one commodity if you have more than one type of food uh, that you're eating. So I think this is an extremely dubious overstretch of the, of the language of the Constitution, of the original meaning, and even goes beyond some of the more extreme precedents uh, that existed before. Uh, nonetheless, this is on the books, and at least for the moment, Congress can exercise this power, but people who care about federalism, about enforcing the text of the Constitution, they should want to see this case limited and preferably overruled. And getting rid of federal marijuana prohibition would be an important step in that direction. It would help incentivize the Supreme Court to rethink this. Also, building a broad bipartisan coalition against this kind of prohibition would also help help move the court over time. The court doesn't just follow the election returns, as some people say, but they are influenced by the climate of opinion. Uh, Raich has already gotten a lot of criticism from conservative and libertarian constitutional theorists, including myself. Thanks in part to the rise of Donald Trump, many on the left are also, in some ways at least, reconsidering their attitudes towards constitutional federalism. So I believe the opportunity exists to rethink what I regard as a really terrible precedent, probably the worst federalism case in the history of the Supreme Court, and to get rid of it. And even if you don't care about the marijuana issue as such, this case has important implications more broadly because the same logic that is used to ban the possession of marijuana throughout the country can be used to ban the possession uh, or distribution of pretty much anything else. There's nothing special about marijuana in this particular regard.
So I think principles of constitutional federalism uh, would be much advanced by getting rid of this particularly egregious form of uh, federal prohibition and beginning the, on the road towards getting rid of the race decision. Uh, I think also there are important policy and moral advantages to decentralizing this issue. Uh, as I think has already been mentioned, 29 states have now legalized medical marijuana, and eight states have actually legalized recreational marijuana, including some very large states like California, Massachusetts, uh, Colorado, and others. Uh, so clearly there is a diversity of preferences on this in the country, and decentralizing the issue can help enable more people to live under a regime uh, which they actually like. This is one of the classic uh, advantages of federalism. It is true that right now, even under Jeff Sessions, the federal government isn't very aggressively prosecuting marijuana cases in those states that have legalized, but that could change at any time. The attorney general has said he clearly wants it to change. And uh, financial institutions cannot invest in this business, or at least it's risky for them to do so, because again, at any time, the federal government can change his mind. The president uh, or the attorney general can wake up on a different side of his bed, and he can say, we're going to have more enforcement now rather than less. Uh, so to create legal certainty in this area, we need to get rid of federal marijuana prohibition, not just rely on the goodwill of the president or of the Justice Department. Uh, now, to be sure, there is a standard argument for why we have to prohibit this at the federal level. They say there could be spillover effects. There could be legalization in Colorado, let's say, and then people from Oklahoma, which hasn't legalized marijuana, they can drive into Colorado, buy some pot, and take it back to their state. So uh, for this reason, it is said we need federal prohibition. This is not a completely ridiculous argument, but it's worth noting that it doesn't seem like federal prohibition is actually done much to prevent the interstate spread of marijuana. Uh, the data show that, according to surveys, some 50% of adult Americans have admitted to using marijuana at some point in their lives. And this probably over understates the true percentage who have used it, because probably there are at least some people who, even on this issue, will not admit to engaging in illegal activity when they're talking to a pollster. So uh, this has not done much to, if anything, to prevent the spread of drug addiction or of marijuana and the like. Uh, what it has done, on the other hand, uh, is to impose great costs on society, thousands of arrests, uh, and many people in prison, and also created a vast black market, which organized crime can take advantage of it, which in turn also incentivizes corruption of the police authorities, both in the U.S., but also in other countries involved, like Mexico, the Mexican drug cartels, and uh, other criminals in that country and elsewhere obviously enormously benefit from this regime, just like the mafia and Al Capone and others benefited from alcohol prohibition uh, back in the day. So we could save society a great deal of resources through uh, legalization at the federal level, which in turn uh, might promote still further legalization at the state level. I'll end with this, that while I think in the short to medium term, the best we can achieve is simply eliminating the federal law in this area and leaving it up to the states, 
Ultimately, I think that the ultimate decentralization in this field, as in some others, is to decentralize all the way to the level of the individual person. It should be up to you as an individual whether you want to use marijuana uh, or not. Uh, conservatives readily recognize this principle when it comes to smoking and drinking, or even when it comes to something like New York City's soda tax, which was the object of a lot of conservative, uh, uh, conservative outrage several years ago when it was instituted. Uh, conservatives rightly, I think, pointed out that, yes, drinking lots of sugary soda isn't very good for you, but it's something that should be up to the individual. The same thing should be said, I think, for marijuana uh, as well. It's true, using it beyond a certain level create some health risks, uh, but it's actually much more of a health risk if you constantly eat junk food and are a couch potato and have a very bad lifestyle, yet nobody argues, almost nobody argues that the federal government should forbid that, even though it's far riskier than uh, you know, most uses of marijuana are likely to be. Uh, and of course, we've recognized this with respect to such issues as alcohol prohibition, smoking, and others, and I think it's past time that we recognize it with marijuana. But from a constitutional point of view, and from an immediate policy point of view, I think the best path forward is to pass something like Representative Garrett's bill, which would get the federal government out of this business, but still leave room for variation at the state level. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. Uh, thank you to Representative Garrett for doing a leader on these issues. Thank you to Ilya for his comments. Um, when I talk about marijuana prohibition, I like to discuss it in, in somewhat critical terms. Let's say, let's say, I don't like to mince words. First of all, in my opinion, the federal drug war is the most evil government policy since slavery. And I won't mince words on condemning people who, ex who want to extend that drug war. When we get down to marijuana prohibition and ask questions about how we got here, we have a policy that's originally based on scientific ignorance, curmudgeonly fears, and not a little bit of racism. Sometimes it feels like I'm coming down here to talk to the Flat Earth Society and say, okay, you maybe had a point back in the day, but we went to the moon, so things have changed. And of course, we have a policy of marijuana that is based on the fears of people who believe that reefer madness was a level-headed and reasonable assessment of marijuana use, which is like running the Smithsonian Natural History Museum based on insights gleaned from the land before time. And I don't even remain—I don't even mean like the first one. I mean like the 14th, like straight-to-land fell one. Now, before anyone wants to call me out and say, "Yes, I am from Colorado," so you can infer what you want from that. Uh, <laughs> But actually, I do not smoke marijuana. I don't like marijuana. Yes, I have smoked marijuana, which is one reason I am a big Pink Floyd fan. Uh, but I, and I also judge excessive marijuana smokers, just like I judge excessive drinkers, and just like I judge people who play a little bit too much World of Warcraft. But that's, of course, what we do in civil society. We don't put them in cages. Now, since D.C. is a drinking town with a politics problem, we must be especially clear about what's going on when we choose certain drugs to put people in cages over other drugs and which drugs are acceptable. Generally speaking, the well-heeled people in this town will make legal the drugs that they themselves prefer to use and make illegal the drugs that they do not like to use, which is, again, I want to reiterate Ilya's point. Uh, Another reason why conservatives need to embrace their inner Bloomberg if they're going to pursue something like marijuana prohibition based on classism and often racism, because just as big, the big soda ban came up based on, I would call, classism, because soda drinking became something that poor people do. And I 
suggest that the LaCroix sale numbers uh, demonstrate this very amply. As soon as soda drinking became moralized, it became something you could ban, because the really interesting question is why do certain things get banned? So why did these things get banned? Well, it's about, what is it? It's the 12th, the 11th, and about exactly 80 years ago, in three months, we passed the first major marijuana piece of prohibition federally, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, a law that was debated over five days and largely pushed by a man named Harry Anslinger. Uh, if it's a name you have not heard, you should realize that he is probably the most important person uh, who you never heard of in the history of marijuana policy. Harry Anslinger had a vehement hatred for addicts, which is how he described all users of marijuana, and he was quite convinced that marijuana caused the trifecta of addiction, insanity, and crime. During the debates, during the hearings over the Marijuana Tax Act, he put together a list of specific anecdotal crimes that he blamed on marijuana, including uh, many grisly murders that he said even one cigarette could make someone insane. There was no science really to be involved in the discussion. There had been some scientific discussions uh, previously with a few studies, even back to the 1890s, the marijuana was not addictive. It did not cause crime and it did not cause insanity. And again, to reiterate, if you go watch Reefer Madness, that is what people believed marijuana did to you in that movie. Sure enough, Anslinger got his law passed and the Marijuana Tax Act came into place. Now what that of course meant that it was nearly impossible to do scientific research on marijuana from that day forward. So we're still living with the demons of 80 years of insane federal policy and the inability to study it scientifically. Some people tried to study it scientifically. Uh, in 1938, Mayor Fearwell LaGuardia of New York City decided to call together a free, the LaGuardia Commission to discover whether or not, in fact, marijuana causes crime, insanity, or addiction. It pushed back heavily on the idea, especially that it causes crime, to which Anslinger threatened that if they ever studied marijuana again without his permission, that he would throw them all in jail. The AMA had later actually, first, there's, we don't actually know the, st the story on this, but at first the AMA called the LaGuardia Report a scientific study, and then it retracted that and said it was ascientific, and we suspect, because Harry Anslinger was very, very fond of getting involved in writing threatening letters to people who didn't play the game he wanted. Now if we go through the 50s, we have almost no marijuana studying due to federal prohibitions, due to the lack of, of funding for marijuana research. In the 1952, we passed the Boggs Act, which is the first federal minimums for marijuana, two years and 10 years for simple marijuana possession. At this point, they had decided the marijuana was, was a gateway drug. Some research about the crime element, the marijuana causes crime, uh, had actually been disputed, so they now decided it was a gateway drug. Now as an aside on that, it is not a gateway drug. Uh, we, have many, many, uh, we have many, many studies of this, but the, the predominant method in which people think it's a gateway drug is that they assign the fact that pretty much everyone who does heroin has done marijuana. But this is like saying, I'm pretty sure that everyone who listens to death metal has listened to Metallica. I'm pretty sure that everyone who has actually probably go, run for the Senate has probably been in the House, so in that sense, the House is a gateway drug to the Senate. But of course, everyone who's in the House is not actually in the Senate. You have to run the causal arrow the other way. Most people, ha most of, as Lily pointed out, most American adults have smoked marijuana up to 50%. It's probably low, and most of those people are not doing heroin or other things. We continue into the 60s and the 70s. Of course, we have the Controlled Substances Act coming in 1970. At that time, it was acknowledged that there was very little scientific evidence due to federal prohibitions on research and lack of funding. There was very little scientific evidence about the effects of marijuana. So as part of Schedule 1, 
putting marijuana in Schedule 1 in 1970, they agreed to set up a commission called the Shaver Commission that would study the effects of marijuana. Again, as if we're playing this movie over and over again, the actual scientist who studied marijuana said it should be treated like alcohol, and the very least decriminalized. Nixon, if you know anything about his views of marijuana, which were highly tied to his views on hippies and other ra and racial minorities, Nixon said he would not pay attention to the recommendations of the Schaefer Commission, and he did not. In 1972, Normal filed a petition to reschedule marijuana, again, lacking much science to actually study marijuana, but trying to get the reels going to study marijuana. That petition actually took 22 years to resolve. Uh, it ended up in 1988 that the DEA's own administrative law judge ruled that marijuana should be not Schedule One, should be decriminalized and probably Schedule Three. The, the DEA administrator just simply overruled that determination, and that was upheld by the D.C. Circuit in 1994, and we enter into today. We have the medical marijuana in states going forward like California in the 90s, and now we have a very big movement for marijuana. But I want to reiterate the history here because the reason we have marijuana prohibition is based in no scientific evidence. It's based in bigotry and curmudgeonly fears, and we're still playing this game over and over again 80 years later. It's quite frankly shameful. That shamefulness continues. In, in August 2016, one of the biggest barriers to marijuana research, if you want to get it through the government, because of course you're, you're studying an illicit drug, so like all Schedule One substances, and again, if you guys know, I'm sure schedule, marijuana is Schedule One, cocaine is Schedule Two. So as far as the as federal government is concerned, cocaine has legitimate medical uses, marijuana does not. But if you're going to study an illicit substance, you have to get permission from the DEA. If you're doing a trial for the FDA, you have to get permission through that. And if it's marijuana, you have to get marijuana through the National Institute of Drug Abuse single source marijuana supply at the University of Mississippi, which is continually low on both quantity and quality and have been trying to reform that. The Obama administration in August 2016, it started accepting applications for more people to grow marijuana so we could have more research done on marijuana so we could actually know the answer to some of the questions that people like Jeff Sessions simply assert, for example, that it causes brain damage in teenagers or it's a gateway drug. We need more research on this. Some of these actually might be true, but a lot of people simply assert this. Nevertheless, since Jeff Sessions has been in the Department of Justice, he has essentially has stalled with 25 or so applications that have been put forth for expanded medical marijuana research. And that's where we are today, locked in a catch-22. I am, I am convinced that the fundamental plank of trying to fix this is research. And we could have a political movement come up and overturn, reschedule marijuana, but already the numbers are not, the, the behavior of members of Congress on this are somewhat confusing because they're not really following the polls uh, very much. We have 94% as I was talking over here, 94% of people not very much following the polls on this. We, do, we need more research. It may be the case, as I said before, the prohibitionists have some important points which will teach us how we should regulate this drug, who should be allowed to buy it, who shouldn't be allowed to buy it, what penalties could be put on. We simply do not know. So the first plank in attacking this is to open up federal research money and, and open up the single supply rule that Jeff Sessions is currently blocking. I want to thank, there's a lot of action going on, of course, with different representatives, uh, and we have the, but of course, we've had defeats of nearly every marijuana support amendment, including the Rohrbacher Blumenauer uh, amendment that is the replacement for Rohrbacher FAR, and it's a very scary time, and it seems like we're living in the past back in 1937 for people who watched Reefer Madness and thought it was a documentary. Thank you.